around the world of the passing of a legend. Mariah Carey said the words legendary, iconic, diva and superstar are often overused and yet Tina Turner embodies them all and so many more. Chaka Khan says she may have left this plane but her spirit and voice are immortal. Mick Jagger said I'm so saddened by the passing of this wonderful friend Tina Turner helped me so much when I was young and I will never forget her so what to say about such a musical icon Tina Turner in Oprah's last televised interview with Tina Turner Winfrey asked what is the legacy of Tina Turner endurance you know I endured hardship all the way if we stay on course, we stay focused, never smoking, never drinking, never doing drugs. My legacy is that I stayed on course from the beginning to the end because I believed in something inside of me yeah. that told me that it can get better or you can make something better and that I want it better. So my legacy is a person that strived for Wanting it better and got it. Tina Turner there with Oprah Winfrey. While joining us is one of our country's best singers from When the Cat's Been Spayed, The Lady Killers with Tina Cross and Suzanne Lynch, Jubilation Gospel Choir and more, and who happens to be on tour in just a few days. Uh, Jackie Clark, kia ora. Welcome to the panel. Oh, thanks. It's nice to be here, Wallace. Lovely to be Well, I'm sad on this occasion, but hey. Yeah. You know. Well, mm. you know, we all, it's, 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 the outpour is extraordinary, isn't it? Well, we all grew up with Tina's music, but as a singer, her passing w- would especially hit home, I can imagine. Well, yeah. I mean, when I heard the, the, the news this morning, I woke up to it and it was all over my Facebook feed. I just thought, oh, it must be a hoax. It can't be true. And then I realised, well, I don't know she was 83, but for some reason I felt like she was going to go on forever because she was just yeah. that that fierce, that kind of pure wahine toa energy and, you know, absolutely unstoppable. So now you're just left, you know, looking at that legacy. Totally, Jackie. Yeah, And that interview, eh? Endurance, I endured hardship, uh, almost underplaying it really, eh, in the interview, I mean, because what she endured in her life on a personal level, she would have, have to have had a reservoir of strength to go through. Yeah, well, well, you know, it's it's... Ike beat her one too many times and she found herself bashed and bruised in a hotel in Dallas and she decided to leave and she basically left that hotel with 36 cents in her pocket and some sort of petrol card and she crossed a motorway and she hid in the Ramada Inn across that motorway until the coast was clear. So she... She's always had that ability to do what she had to do, and she's a total survivor. And it's so fascinating that she sounds like the world's most indestructible barroom singer, that 
that dirty, earthy, growly voice, and yet it's controlled by a soul that was that was very pure, and she lived the life of a monk, you know, like as she said, no, no, nothing nothing evil passed her lips, but she sounded like she was just, you know, she was just <laughs> the naughtiest girl on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, stay there, Jackie. Let's um, uh, talk to Anna Dean here. Uh, absolutely. Looking at her strutting her stuff and some of those yeah. music videos back <laughs> in the day, I actually saw there's an incredible selection of images on the Guardian website just tracking her career and these mm-hmm. outfits. And mm-hmm. I was actually thinking, it looked to me like Harry Styles' um, wardrobe designers yeah. actually got a lot of um, inspiration from her early her early garb in the 60s. And what a trajectory. Um Someone was pointing out to me today that she'd gone from, you know, her 60s music, huge hits in the 80s, basically performed with every other icon on the planet, and then got into making interesting chanting music and Indian, um, you know, it's it's incredible what, what oh, she well. managed to to travel through musically as well as yeah. all around the world. Jackie? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, when she came back in the 80s, that, that, that album, um, Private Dancer, that was, that's called the greatest comeback of all time. Mm. <laughs> because she basically was almost a nostalgia act. She was sort of doing the kind of the review, the, the R&B review. And when she met, I think it was some Australian dude, Roger Davies, who was, you know, the greatest manager of all time, they say, they put together this, this album and suddenly she was you know from the cascade lounge straight to the top of the charts and she just never looked back and and i think the thing about her is any recording you hear of tina within seconds you know it's tina turner there's no right doubt. Yeah. it can't it can't be anybody else there there is no one else that sounds like her someone says here i stood on a rooftop in nelson to watch her concert down there who else could play an outdoor concert in Nelson? <laughs> well, quite a few people, actually. Uh, in fact, when the Come Caspian on. Spade was there. In fact, I saw you, Jackie Nelson. <laughs> Nelson. <laughs> My oh, gosh. Uh, Traf- was it Trafalgar Centre or was it the you – know, you know where it is. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Peter Field, I don't know whether you saw Tina live or not. No, I never really had the desire to, interestingly enough. Crazy. Um, how tone-deaf is it, though, <laughs> that she was part of a band and – her husband chose the name Ike and Tina Turner as opposed to <laughs> Tina and Ike. But um, yeah. yeah, I remember seeing the movie, of course, about domestic violence. And I think that was actually kind of a game changer way before uh, um, way before its time and changed mm. probably a lot of people's minds, frankly, that movie. Um, no, what I, what I think of is a couple things. One, as an American, she grew up in Tennessee and yeah. in the near Memphis and that wonderful combination, that wonderful mixing, right, Jackie, that that, that makes for art of, of blues mm. and gospel and churches yeah. and soul. And mm. I think she had all of that, which is wonderful. And then the second point I'd make is just quickly, politically, um, she chose well before uh, Private Dancer to leave the United States. So like some others, she said, you know, I'm black and frankly, living in Paris or living in France or Switzerland is incomparably better for a human being than living in the United States if you're black. That's right. I I think we should remember that. um, And that her comeback was so fantastic, being that she was an expatriate, all the more tribute to her. Yeah, made her home in Switzerland, I think. eh? Mm. Jackie, did you ever cover any of her music at all? And if you did, what would be, I guess, the the challenges or responses to her music? 
Well, the woman's range was ridiculous. She had mm-hmm. a really beautiful bottom end, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. She she just had a gorgeous low tone, but she was the queen of the octave jump. So any singer of a certain age who's been cursed by somebody asking them to sing a Tina Turner song will know the pain that you have to endure. Oh, well, let's hear from, something. You know, well, you know, and actually, I remember years ago. Um, going in to do a jingle and they said oh we want you to sound like Tina Turner and it was for milk or something like that and it was probably something around the you better be good to me Ah!" and then (laughs) then then you have to go you know like it's just full of those massive jumps but she had she had this sort of um, she was probably one of the best song stylist ever, I think. I think I heard a story about when she did Goldeneye, you know, the Bond tune and the boys from U2 wrote that and and they wrote it late at night and um, they sent, Bono sent her a a vocal demo of the tune and then woke up the next morning and thought, oh my God, I've sent her the, the biggest piece of poo ever because I sounded terrible. I was so tired. And then when she got back to him, she said, oh no, don't worry, darling. I know what you mean. She basically transformed that vocal line into the amazing, amazing song it was. And when he finally heard it, he just, just, you know, he basically got down on his knees and bowed before and said, you know, you are the best song stylist Extraordinary. Ever. Yeah. Now, but while we have you here, um, uh, Jackie, because I've always been a big fan, a really a big fan of what you do with the Lady Killers with Tina Cross and Suzanne Lynch. Um, there's a couple of vids there I've watched over and over again. The sort of, Aww. speaking of vocals, Wow. <laughs> I thought that's, this is cool. Um, so I think Southern Cross you do a, a version of. Oh, yes. Any, anyway, you yourself are on tour soon, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm strutting myself in a solo vein from next Wednesday. I'm doing a tour called Jackie Goes Prima Diva. So I'm, <laughs> I'm celebrating all the old school gals, you know, gals like Judy Garland and Peggy Lee and Nina Simone, but then also my kind of childhood heroes, people like um, Kate Bush and Dolly Parton. Oh, wow. and, and, mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's just, it's just it, even Alison Durbin gets a look, look in Wallace. It's just, nice. it's just a, a celebration of those women that have inspired me to... You know, I spent 40 years singing, which is what I've, what oh, I've done with Jackie, my life. That's, <laughs> that's so cool. That is so awesome. Look look out for it uh, online. But for now, Jackie Clark, Cure, I appreciate your time. Uh, pleasure, Wallace. Pleasure. That is, uh, I'd like to say, one of our country's best singers, Jackie Clark, uh, from mm. When the Cat's Been Spayed, Lady Killers, Tina, Cro- uh, Tina Cross, Susan Lynch. Just while you're here, if, if, if Tina Turner wasn't, do you think, just recapping, Peter, from the US, what, what's, what's a band or a singer out of the US that you really, that you have always loved? Right, almost a contemporary was Aretha Franklin. And I found there was something more soul and deeper in Aretha Franklin um, and talking to me and at me in a way that I grew up in the 80s and Tina Turner was more pop. Um, So I know we remember her that way, but I just really didn't listen to FM radio in the same way. Fair enough. Um, You're on the panel of RNZ National. A lot of memories coming through uh, about, uh, here's one, Tina Turner at Mount Smart Stadium, Auckland, 85, my first rock concert. Amazing. I saw her 15 years later at Madison Square Garden in 2020. Timeless power. The panel, RNZ National, Peter Field, Anna Dean with me this afternoon. When you think of Antarctica, you probably picture 
barren ice camps, perhaps the odd hut where a small group of scientists are conducting research. In reality, though, not the case. Across 2022-23, the International Association of Antarctica tour operators estimated there would be over 106,000 visitors. As the number of tourists visiting each year has increased, so have the localised impacts of humans on the continent. So is it a time we called it a day on tourism in Antarctica. Is there one place in the world that should be simply sacrosanct? What do you think? Text me 2101. With us is University of Canterbury Associate Professor Daniela Liggett, who researches environmental management and tourism regulation in extreme environments. Uh, Dr. Liggett, kia ora. Kira Wallace, lovely to be here. It's so nice to have you here. And let me say, I was stunned by that stat. 106,000 visitors over two years. I thought it was just, you know, a, a, a few influences, a few scientists and Lord. Yeah, and actually it's only one year. It's one season since the yes. Antarctic tourism season is over the Austro summer from about October to April. So 2022-2023 is actually this past season. And that was the estimate of 106,000 visitors. Um, and we'll get real update, real numbers in a few months' time once those numbers are released by IATO, by the International Association of Antarctica Tour okay. Operators. That would come as quite a surprise to many of our listeners that um, 106,000 visitors over the season. What, uh, and the makeup is who, Daniela? Um, it's mostly experienced, wealthier travellers who've been elsewhere already and who've got Antarctica on their bucket list or who pretty much want to see the place before they fear it won't be the same anymore because of climate change radically changing the coastlines of the Antarctic and the wildlife there. All right, stay there, Daniela. Let's go on the panel. We'll come back to you. Uh, Anna. I think it's atrocious. I uh, definitely don't think that that number of people should be going anywhere near the place. What happens to all their sewage? Um, how do they? I, I just. I, how much are they paying? Is a is a first question. And if it's just a reserve of the wealthy, on some kind of apocalypse or um, disaster porn viewing holiday, um, that just sounds like a terrible state of affairs to me. Uh, Peter. Right. Um, well, we do have listeners here probably who are closer to this. Uh, Daniela, how much uh, of this tourism comes through Christchurch and New Zealand? A very small part of that, actually. Most of the tourists travel through South America, through Argentina in particular, the little port of Ushuaia in southern Patagonia. And 99% of all tourism to the Antarctic is ship-based. And of that ship-based expedition tourism that includes landings in the Antarctic, about 98% travel to the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the bit that sticks out south of South America. And you've got the tourists coming through Argentina or Chile on their way there. So so clarify this for us. Right. So this is not people going to the South Pole. This is people... Uh, right, so maybe yeah. we might clarify that, and then it'll sound a little bit less like the invasion yeah. of the body snatchers. And if you consider that Antarctica in total covers about 13.6 million square kilometers, which is about 51 times New Zealand. 
Okay. That number may not sound quite so big. I mean, New Zealand, I've just looked up the numbers, had about 3.9 million inbound tourists in 2019 before the pandemic and about 1.4 million this last year. Yeah, actually, it's a surprising amount of a response regarding this, Daniela. And let me put it out to you and we'll follow it up tomorrow as well in our mailbag. Do you think that we should halt uh, people going to Antarctica, bar the scientists. So your influencers, your rock stars, your celebrities, stay away from Antarctica. Just keep the people who need to be there. Do you believe tourism in Antarctica should stop? So finally, uh, Daniela, um, is this being considered in the scientific community? I understand there's a, a conference coming up. There's a lot of research, especially over the last, 10 years or so that focuses on Antarctic tourism and tourism management um, and also the environmental impacts, potential environmental impacts on of Antarctic tourism in the Antarctic. Um, however, there is absolutely no consensus on whether it should stop. Uh. And besides that, it's a bit of a moot question because Antarctica is a global commons. We That's couldn't yes. just say we just stop all tourism. Indeed. It's a region that Every one of us, all of humanity, technically can visit. Daniela, Kiora, it's wonderful to have you here to explain. Uh, thanks for the uh, uh, insights and a lot of interest in this. That's uh, Daniela Liggett, who researches environmental management and tourism uh, regulation in uh, environments like Antarctica. Now, before we go to our next guest, uh, because we've had uh, a lot of interest in Tina Turnham, we have uh, to tell us a, a short story, none other than RNZ Auckland's own Jeremy Ansel. Kia ora, Jeremy. Kia ora. How are you now? Tell us. All right. This was 1994. Tina was in Wellington for a big concert. And uh, we had a request to bring her into the studio. This is in Broadcasting House, when we had Broadcasting House, the gorgeous studios in, in Wellington, uh, for her one and only Australasian interview with the ABC. And we were going to connect from Wellington to wherever, Sydney, wherever it was in Australia. Um, I was looking after the, the studio bookings because my boss was on holiday. Uh, so I had to put a, you know, book, book a studio. And Nine to Noon heard about this and said, oh, we'll, we'll grab her in the hallway and we'll do a, you know, get an interview, a quick one that we can put on the, on the radio. Her management said, no, 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 this has to be ex- exclusive. Can you hide her in another studio? Uh-huh. So I booked it into a basement studio where Sports Roundup came from and didn't tell Nine to Noon. The limousine pulled up. Uh, she came out with, with one other person. I guided her down the, the corridor, down another corridor, into the studio. Um, and she didn't really say anything. She just, yeah. you know, I just showed her where the microphone was, where the headphones was. She said, oh, okay, okay. And Katrina Batten was the operator. And, you know, for an hour, she spoke. She was wonderful. She uh, she looked a lot smaller than she does on TV. Okay. I mean, she was struck yeah. me as a tall person. Um, and uh, And at the end, she said, Thank you. I said thank you, and we stood there. And I thought, oh yeah, no, I've got to show her where to go out. <laughs> <laughs> Tried not to be starstruck, but you know these things happen. And um, yeah, she was lovely. That is an amazing story. And so her passing, this that moment, that hour, must be going through your mind today. Yeah, well, it often has over the years. I think at the time she really? was the most famous person I'd ever met. And uh, um, yeah, 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 I. I it seemed, it's sad that she's gone. Yeah.
Jeremy Ansel, thank you very much for barging your way into the panel. <laughs> Come again. You just barged on in, but good on you. <laughs> Jeremy. All right, Anna Dean and Peter Fair with me this afternoon. It's nine away from five. Now, to close out today's show, new research has found no evidence of a link between hosting large elite sporting events and participant levels. It's always been assumed that the inspiration we get from seeing our athletes take home gold medals and trophies translates to increased participation in physical activity when in fact mightn't be the case. At the moment just half of the adults meet the World Health Organization guidelines for physical activity and get this for children it's less than 10%. With us is Exercise NZ Chief Executive Richard Betty. Kia ora, Richard. Kia ora. I found this interesting because we do focus a lot on elite sport levels, uh, particularly at the moment. Um, you were saying, hey, it does not have a trickle-down effect. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you use this tr- trickle-down concept, we kind of know that it's flawed in the economic sense of saying if we can make businesses really wealthy, they'll just trickle down and eventually we'll get a bit of it uh, at, at, the, at the bottom. It just doesn't work. And the same actually applies with major events. And so there's always been this argument, if we host the, the Olympics or, or the Commonwealth Games or potentially a sporting code, that that therefore will increase the participation either in sport generally or that particular code. And what all of the research has found is there's been a temporary boost and then it drops off. Yeah, and so uh, some of them, for example, have been around judo. So when the UK hosted the the World Judo Champs, what of course happens is they see it on TV and a bunch of kids get enrolled by their parents. Within a couple of years, though, it's back to normal. And so it's really important. This is not to say you should not host world events. World events are really useful if it contributes to New Zealand economy or some other argument. And so there's lots of reasons to host major events, but participation is not one of them. Okay, you've always been a let's get, let's take it to our panel, Peter Field. What's what 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 of this? Well, we certainly shouldn't be surprised that most people get their sport on television, and if they're going to get their sport on television, then just turning off the TV, whatever is on it, and getting outside would be the first move to go. Um, to be sure, uh, yeah, we like to emulate uh, heroes, but I imagine that that's probably not the key thing. It's starting young, getting them out early, and turning off the television. Is that true, Richard? Yes, so I I think um, TV and social media probably more generally uh, do have a major issue. And and even this idea that sport is the solution to physical activity is part of the problem in New Zealand because I think sport is one of the solutions to physical activity, but it's not the only thing. I don't don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. I don't understand... What do you mean? I think the idea is that any kind of movement, anything being outside, yeah. it doesn't have to be a sport. If you're walking, if you're outside, you're getting vitamin Got D, it. that's the thing. Uh, right. yeah, so because there's, a, there's particularly when you look at kids, if you're not a sporting kid, you yeah. don't want to partake in physical activity. And you go, the reality is there are lots of options for you. And if you think in New Zealand as an adult, the most popular sport is actually going to the gym. But because it doesn't have gold medals, no one pays attention to it. And the reality is if we're, if, if we're trying to talk about gold medals, that's one conversation, and that's where most of the money in New Zealand from the government goes. We need to be investing far more in the, the physical activity side than getting people moving, and, and there's just not enough money investing. Uh, I see what you're saying. All right, Anna Dean. It's very interesting. It seems to me like every everybody should be riding bikes again. You know, um, heading off to school by bike seemed like a fantastic way for me as a kid. I used to bike twenty minutes across yeah. Nelson to Nelson Intermediate from where I lived, and um, didn't even think about it. Whereas today, my bike I, lanes. How'd you do it? 
Well, it it was it was it's what you did. It, just what you did. It was just it was just part of how I got to school. And, and I hope it wasn't after those those fifteen year old drinking bouts, though. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, we've we've really lost uh, so much, as you say, um, of that of that kind of. Um, I'm not even sure what the word is, just su- supplementary physical activity that just is, was part of New Zealand life, I think. I think that's quite a fair point, isn't it, Richard? That supplementary physical activity we always used to do, but perhaps less so now. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, the, 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 the technical term for it is incidental. So in other words, it, Thank you. it happens. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, though, because it's the stuff that you do when you're not thinking about doing it as an activity. So you've got structured exercise, that's going to the gym, doing a yoga class. You've got incidental activity like you know walking the dog cycling to work or cycling to school and then you've got structured sport the problem is we always go to that last one is somehow the answer and it should be part of it but the reality is if you look at it globally sport is generally on the decline whereas recreational activity and incidental activities are actually increasing because look at kids want to do skateboarding why because it's on their terms rather than play a particular code and Uh. you know practice on Thursdays and game on Saturday. And again, I'm not, I'm not bagging sport here, but the problem is it gets way too much attention, mainly because there's gold medals involved or World Cups. And what we really need to do is focus on getting people, kids, adults, everyone moving in whatever way you want to do. You are such an ambassador for getting moving, aren't you, Richard? It's quite, you, can hear, you can hear the passion, but also you can hear the real anger that we're just a bunch of sitting-on-the-couch type people. Well, I, I always do like to spin it in positive, though, because you know, I, not, I don't want to beat people up for not doing the right thing, because it's not particularly helpful. But, uh, but there is some sort of frustration, not so much with individuals, but with, I'll say with governments, and being successive governments, whatever side of the political spectrum governments sit on, because they don't look at it as a preventative tool, because there's so many benefits. It literally is the magic pill. Even if I talk about the thing that's happened for the last three years, which is COVID, you know, it was the best thing you could do for yourself to, present, to protect yourself from being hospitalised other than vaccination was actually to move your body. But no one talked about that. Not once was there a public health uh, message. I was the only person saying it. You know, and then there were public health experts that never mentioned it. Here's one. I was disappointed to find that at high school now there is no compulsory PE from year 11, i.e. fifth form. Yeah, it's, it's really sad, and particularly when we look at um, young women and young girls, their drop-off rate is astronomical. There are less than 7% of teenagers get enough physical activity, and that's going to be a major problem for not only the teenagers, but us as taxpayers moving forward in terms of the health cost of that. That's, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars of completely wasted money that we could be saving. Always good to talk, Richard Betty, Kira Ora, and a little bit of Tina Turner going out, and Anna Dean and Peter Field. What a show. Wonderful stuff. Lovely to have you both on. I'm Wallace Chapman and yes, it is Power Ballad Friday tomorrow. I'll see you sharp at 3.45. Stick around for Checkpoint.